0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open-source world. This is episode 85, recorded on December 21st, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, because today is an episode of the most definitive stories, like the things that defined 2018. And if there was one person, one man, I could choose to talk to about this, it would be you, Joe. And I think we've got to start with Red Hat. What do you say? Yeah, the news that absolutely
1: dominated at least the second half of the year was that IBM was going to buy Red Hat. <laughs> it sent shockwaves through the whole open source community.
0: I'm still feeling those shockwaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not only that, but really if you think about it, let's back up a little bit. I mean, the the year starts really with Red Hat announcing they're acquiring Core OS. In January 2018, Red Hat announced for a mere... million, they would be purchasing one of the most surprising and exciting upcoming Linux distributions, CoreOS. And then the rest of 2018 was really, how are they going to integrate them? Yeah, well, it wasn't until June that we found out exactly what was happening
1: with CoreOS. And that was when they announced Fedora CoreOS, which amused quite a few
0: of us, harking back to the old Fedora Core name. (laughs) Yeah, that was my favorite part of the whole thing. Although, With the other things that have happened with Red Hat this year, it's sort of just been put on stasis. Like, we haven't really seen a lot develop there. Um, But that doesn't mean that things from that general area have settled down. In fact, this year, Red Hat managed to hit 1.0 on Red Hat Stratus, which is a storage project that I've been following with a lot of interest.
1: It does look very, very interesting, doesn't it? This is their bet against ZFS because they unlike Canonical, don't seem to think that they can ship ZFS.
0: So they need an alternative. And it does look like a really well-thought-out project. We did a, a special on it recently on Linux Unplugged. However, just in this last month, the ZFS leadership or ZFS leadership has decided to rebase a lot of the different projects on ZFS for Linux. So the ZFS on Linux that is shipping will be the authoritative version of ZFS, So Red Hat, Stratus has more competition.
1: But the licensing issue hasn't gone away. Canonical seem to be doing fine with it and have got away with it for want of a better phrase. But Red Hat just don't want to go down that route. And I think that ultimately we're all going to benefit from that because if you've got two competing projects, and okay, Stratus is a long way off. It's certainly a long way behind ZFS, but... With the resources that Red Hat have got, especially now that they've got the IBM money as well, maybe it won't be too long, maybe a year or two before we've got something that is approaching ZFS in terms of features. And that will hopefully foster good competition and drive them both forward.
0: Hmm. I do like that. Uh, That is what I hope as well. And I, I wouldn't count Project Stratus out, too, from just a competitive standpoint, because they're really basing it off of a bunch of comprehensive existing technologies baked into Linux, and then bringing it all together with a comprehensive API. And the industry tends to respond really well to that. So Stratus has a huge potential in the marketplace. But... In the meantime, ZFS isn't standing still. And I think that's probably good for everybody, right? (laughs) I mean, it's it's really good to have competition in this area. So we've had a little while for the
1: dust to settle on this announcement. And I remember at the time not being as worried as a lot of people. And I don't think that my opinion has changed over the last few months. How do you feel about it? Do you think that your attitude's changed? I
0: have not yet really gotten enough data to make a new decision. I have, however, heard from a considerable amount of Red Hat employees, and they seem to be doing better with the news. This has been my data point, really. It has been, I would say, um, the day that you and I recorded the Linux Action News that the IBM acquisition of Red Hat was announced, we... We recorded that. A little behind-the-scenes information for people is (laughs) Joe and I sometimes sit around and just shoot the shit for like an hour before we record. (laughs) And because we did that, we happened to delay the recording just enough for the news to break on a Sunday, which never happens. That's why we record Linux Action News on a Sunday because there's no news on a Sunday, so you can summarize everything and get it out before the news cycle begins again. It's great. Except IBM threw that whole thing off when they announced the acquisition of Red Hat. And while we were recording that episode, I must have heard from a dozen different Red Hat employees that were sending me messages, and they were freaking out. They were beside themselves. And then Monday, there was an all-staff meeting, which uh, I had an opportunity to see, and the, the sentiment was mostly the same, that we're really doomed here. Um, and then as time has gone on, a, a new mantra seems to have developed amongst the Red Hat crew. And it, it is one that is, maybe we can impart our culture upon IBM. Maybe IBM will be receptive so that way they can stay competitive in the new marketplace. Maybe this is the perfect time for this acquisition because we can impart something on IBM. I don't know if that's, actually possible. (laughs) So I, as an independent observer, remain a little skeptical of this entire acquisition. But I can tell you from the people that I've been communicating with, they have transitioned from freaking out to there's some potential here. The people inside think there's potential. And that gives me some hope. Well, I've been
1: positive from the start, and I haven't changed. I haven't seen any evidence that things have got worse or are going to get worse and it just means a load more money going into open source 34 billion dollars <laughs> going into open source effectively yeah. and i don't see how that can be a bad thing okay red hat are not sort of free software and you know they're not doing it for you know ideological reasons they are very pragmatic yeah. they are a company who believes that open source is the best way to do things mm-hmm. and open source software is free software effectively. So basically no one can complain, even if they do some pragmatic stuff like Fedora made it much easier to install proprietary drivers and things this year. But who cares? The the underlying OS is still open source free software. Yeah. And if you've got all that extra money
0: going into it, it it's got to be good. It's GPL code at the end of the day. And I have a couple of canaries in the coal mine. And the number one canary in the coal mine that I have amongst my whole collection at this point, really, is Jim Whitehurst. If something happens to Jim, if he leaves, um, anything like that, that's the number one dead canary in the coal mine signal that something is wrong. And if he he remains on board and he continues to be public and communicate and um, tweet about what's going on and all those things, I think that's a sign that things are going well. And it's only one of many signs. It's not the only sign. I'm not saying that. But it is a good signal out of them. And so far, that's remained a pretty strong signal.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that that would be a big red flag, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think if anything, it's going to go the other way and he's going to end up more senior at IBM and changing the culture over there. Yeah,
0: I hope so. That's what the Red Hat employees hope.
1: Yeah. Well, when I was going through the year's worth of news to collate all of this, one thing kept jumping out at me. One word kept jumping out at me over and over again in so many stories, and that word was Microsoft. (laughs) Yeah, no surprise there. It's just been a huge year for them in the Linux and open source world, which is such, such a weird thing, isn't it? How can Microsoft, this old enemy, be so relevant to Linux and open source now? We've seen just such a huge shift there. And I think that apart from IBM buying Red Hat, the second biggest news story of the year was Microsoft
0: buying GitHub. Well, is it GitHub or is it Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network? I'm I'm not sure. I, it's probably GitHub. Yeah, it's probably GitHub. Yeah, man, get it, and and all of the other things. Them dropping Edge <laughs> HTML for Chromium. Um, all of this has just been almost at least every other week almost to the to like the date, there is some major Microsoft news. Even this week, there is big Microsoft news that we're just not covering because of the nature of this episode. Um, and I got to say, the last two years have been a process of me realizing that I was a child and that I'm no longer a child and that I had childish things that I thought were important that were not important. And it's been... It's been a little um, humbling, to be honest with you, because when I when I in the '90s and in in early 2000s, I built my whole career around fighting Microsoft about building and providing better solutions than what you could accomplish on Windows. And back then, I was the only jackass saying you could do things with Apache and MySQL. You didn't need IIS and Microsoft SQL or Oracle. I was the jackass that was saying, why not host these files on a Samba server using XFS instead of a Windows server using NTFS? I was that guy, which is now the norm. Everybody says that now. It's the normal thing to recommend. But back then, like, it, to me, was a religious battle. And I was fighting the good fight to defend Linux's honor against an onslaught of FUD by the Microsoft Corporation and now I look back at that and I think, what was all of that about? What was I what was what did I accomplish? Maybe, maybe maybe you could say that all of us put in a good fight and now Microsoft has been forced to um do things the open source way, but I'm not sure that's actually the case. This year and the last year have been really humbling for me. I think you should start
1: a new podcast called The Linux Hipster. I was into Linux before anyone else was.
0: <laughs> I was into Linux before it was cool. I was into Linux before you could run it in a VPS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But isn't it true that
1: Microsoft really have changed and that the the Microsoft under the Balmer years is, is different from the
0: Microsoft under Nadella? I would have said no until I went down there and... Um, I was invited down there for Code Radio to to chat a little about what they're doing with .NET Core, um, which I now appreciate in a much different scale. But back then it was it was really just about Microsoft open sourcing .NET Core, which now is like one of many, 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 many things they've open sourced. But back then, it was just that, and and I I was trying to figure it out because. Um, just for the audience, you know, I've grown up, lived in the Pacific Northwest. Microsoft has been in my backyard my entire life. I have done um, contract work for Microsoft. I have done intern work for Microsoft. I have turned down multiple jobs from Microsoft. I've had many family members that work at Microsoft, and I and I mean more than more than a few, and also friends that work at Microsoft. So I've over the years, I mean, at least at least a dozen times a year, I'm down there at the campus, you know, just down there for lunch even, and so I. I I followed them very closely uh, since they became a company, and I, I really hated them <laughs> for the longest time. Um, but I really have to say, like later on, as as um, really Balmer left and things changed, I I got a greater appreciation through different interactions that I had opportunities to have that things were really changing. And I think the number one signal to me about, like, this is a real change, not just like a PR change, not just like a Twitter-like message, but the real signal to me was that they were firing people. They were firing people that were longtime Microsoft veterans that were blocking this transition. And they were bringing in new people, like like somebody I, somebody I met in the .NET Core team, Joey, Joey he's probably a listener of this show. He's a he's a he he was a college student that ran Gentoo and they brought him on to replace a 25-year Windows veteran because that Windows veteran couldn't see things in the new paradigm, the new lens in which Microsoft looked at the market. But Joey, a college student Gentoo user,
1: could. Well, one thing that I think we have to keep in mind here is that Microsoft is a large company that makes a lot of money. And okay, right now they're focused on Linux and open source because that is a good revenue stream for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna be like that forever. So I think we have to treat this with some caution. But at the same time, I don't think that they should necessarily be judged as a company on their previous actions. I think we should judge each action as it comes. And then buying GitHub is a huge deal and we have to watch to see what happens with that. Yeah, And them joining the Open Invention Network is, is clearly good. They've contributed all these patents for people to use. But I think we do have to keep an eye on them. They do have that bad history of Linux as a cancer and everything. And that might have been under a different regime, but it's still the same company. So I th- think just cautious optimism is the best approach when it comes to Microsoft and Linux.
0: I would say I agree only if you were willing to apply that same cautious optimism to every commercial company that is currently making revenue from open source services. 2019, is really the year of services. Apple is going to try to make all of their money from services. All of the companies are. Even even the companies that were hardware based for the last 30 years are going to try to make their money off of services. And the thing is that's something that Microsoft has wanted for a very 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 long time. Microsoft has been begging the market to go to services. And so they're <laughs> they're totally ready for this. They're they're totally fired up and ready to go. And um I think this is a trend that's probably going to last 10 years. So I agree, we have to remain vigilant. But we have to remain vigilant for all commercial companies that are contributing to free software. Because they're all contributing to further their own interest. Microsoft is just one of the larger ones now. Oh yeah, definitely. We should keep an eye on
1: all of those companies, including Canonical, who've had... A pretty good year, I would say. The release of 18.04 stands out. That's the first LTS that they've released with GNOME on the desktop. And Shuttleworth has said that it's going to be supported for 10 years. And he's talking about doing an IPO in 2019. Things seem to be
0: lining up pretty well for Canonical. Not just well. I would say a near perfect public execution. 18.04 was good. It was really good. And we've gotten some really solid derivatives based off of 1804. Some of the best derivatives I think we've ever seen of Ubuntu are based off of 1804 right now. Very, very good. But this is also now the pivot of the company. They really ate the shit sandwich in 2017. And 2018 was Canonical really firing On all cylinders. 1804, I think, was one of their best releases in history. 1810 is a very solid mid-release. Snaps, which have been a company focus, have had a very, very good year. And Canonical has been part of that big Kubernetes conversation, which everyone's having towards the end of 2018. So they're doing really good right now, at least publicly on all the areas they're trying to give attention to. 2019 is really theirs to lose. Definitely. Thinking about Snaps,
1: Firefox and Chromium are the obvious huge examples, but they've had a lot of proprietary commercial software as well, which some people aren't happy with, but realistically, if you want to press forward as a platform, you're going to need. And it feels like they are gathering some momentum now so that they can go to the likes of Adobe to get some of that software running on Linux. And I think that you're right, it is theirs to lose next year. They really need to double down on the Kubernetes and server and container stuff as well as the desktop, and they could be in a really strong position this time next year. They could be preparing for an IPO. That IPO may have happened, they might have been sold, but
0: either way, they could be in a really strong position. I hope so. I don't know why, but part of me wonders if they were an American company, perhaps there would be more buzz right now because if you look at their sheer market dominance with virtual servers and containers and Internet of Things devices, they're they're beating Red Hat in a lot of really important categories. But yet we talk about Ubuntu like it's some desktop operating system. They're, it's just simply not getting the respect it deserves in 2018. I hope 2019 changes that. Yeah, but they don't have the market share when it comes to the boring,
1: not exciting stuff that Red Hat does. Red Hat making all of that revenue from mostly quite boring installations that are just running infrastructure that we don't tend to think about.
0: I mean, yes, you are absolutely right, but I think Ubuntu and its different older releases have a fair share of that same exact workload. It just doesn't get the credit it deserves. And I, I grant you, it's been a while since I have been going to clients and fixing their boxes, but there were absolutely conversations I had about solving issues with CentOS by moving to Ubuntu. And I I look at the market dynamics, and I look at the stats of people that download our shows and that email us, and it just, to me, seems like there is a real phenomenon happening here that the market hasn't fully r- realized. You know, I could be wrong, because there's so many on-premises business applications where CentOS or Red Hat Enterprise just really, really is the perfect tool for the job. But from my anecdotal experience over the last few years, I, I I feel like Ubuntu is one of the biggest rising technologies that isn't getting the full. Like it's just it's the, the conversation doesn't fully represent like the growth it's seen. Well, yeah, and
1: Canonical seems more agile than Red Hat because they are smaller and younger and you know thirstier, hungrier, not owned by IBM. Uh, well, yeah, but you can't beat that. Entrenched um, market share and name you know, it's, it's something that management are never going to fire you for, for going with Red Hat. Whereas with Ubuntu, it's a bit more of a risk. So I think you've got an interesting dynamic building there between this sort of new innovative um, Ubuntu and the old school solid Red Hat.
0: When you're really talking about this market, too, you got to think about the whole life cycle. It really starts at the student level it starts with what is the student learning about? What are they getting certified in? What are they going to try to find courses in? And and then that drives different courses. Like that drives different educational institutions to build courseware there. And it, it sort of creates an ecosystem. And so Ubuntu has to find a place in that ecosystem because there are a lot of different places where you can become Red Hat certified, you can become AWS certified, But an Ubuntu certification or a canonical server or IoT device certification isn't really a thing. And that plays a part too. And it it kind of creates demand in itself. And of course, you don't really see people running
1: RHEL or CentOS on their laptop generally, do you? Whereas (laughs) you see tons of Ubuntu.
0: Maybe some Fedora.
1: Yeah, true. You do see Fedora, but that's not quite the same thing, is it? I mean, it's very similar, whereas the beauty of ubuntu the the strength that they have is it is the same operating system whether it's on a laptop or a server it's it's just the same thing whether it's deployed on thousands of machines or just one person downloading it installing it on an old laptop
0: right and if you're paying or not you're going to get five years of support yeah exactly
1: so it'll be very interesting to see what happens this next year between ubuntu and red hat and We kind of look at this as a fight, but I don't think it is. I think there's enough market there for them both to do well.
0: I agree. I think so too. I think there's plenty of market and they both are, just by their very nature, serving different niches.
1: Well, something that there seems to be an increasing market for is gaming on Linux. And this year has been a huge,
0: huge year for gaming on Linux. I just can't believe it. I I really can't believe it. It, 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 All of a sudden, this gift of Proton landed on us, and it's changed everything. I've been playing so many great games on my machine that I just— I think the list right now is unofficially near 2,500 games that are supported via Proton, or also known as Steam Play— and for me, it's it's really meant that my desktop is now full of different game icons that I've just been waiting to play for so long.
1: Yeah, by all accounts, this has really opened up gaming on Linux and made quite a few people able to ditch their Windows partition because there's just so many games available now. Not all of them, of course. Some of the AAA titles or a lot of the AAA titles are not available. But it's been a kind of weird year from Valve because... They've pretty much given up on hardware, or at least that's the way it feels, but then they've also invested all this money into making the games work on Linux, and that makes you think maybe they might have another go at the hardware situation with the Steam machines next year.
0: I don't know. And then you gotta you got to remember the whole thing with the Steam links, too. I, I expected by this time in 2018 we'd be talking about the Steam Link 4K or whatever it would be called. 60 frames per second, 4K Steam Link streaming from your desktop PC. And instead, Valve just killed the whole product line and just decided to do the app model, which is not what I saw coming at all. However, having a couple of months now to uh, marinate on this particular change, it does seem to be the better choice. And it... Kind of seems obvious now in retrospect. But it has been a year that I didn't expect. I thought we'd have a couple of Steam machines. I thought we'd have a new generation of Steam Link hardware. I thought we'd have games shipping at, on Windows and Linux at the same exact time, thanks to Vulkan. And it's it's been some of that. And some of that's come in different forms that I didn't expect, thanks to Proton. But uh, it hasn't really been... Nearly what I thought it would be. And um, I guess that's just how it goes sometimes. You sort of, you kind of have your expectations, you observe the results, and then you reset those expectations. And then you come to the uncomfortable understanding that everything happens on Valve time when it comes to anything that Valve makes. Yeah. And maybe it's a case that they felt a
1: bit burnt from making hardware and selling hardware because there's so much that goes into that with the certifications and all the prototyping process and everything. And don't forget that if you have hardware, you also then have to work on the software. Whereas if you just get rid of the hardware and say, here's an Android app or here's an app that works on the Raspberry Pi, someone else is taking care of all the hardware for you. Like their whole business model of, uh, this is our Steam store. It's running on hardware that you have put together yourself. This is your gaming PC. So if they just concentrate on the software, then it's probably much less of a headache for them and ultimately much more profitable.
0: Well, of course, all of that is well and good unless your kernel performs like crap thanks to Meltdown Inspector.
1: Yeah, technically this was kind of end of last year, wasn't it? But really, it's echoed throughout the entire year. Yeah. But from a personal perspective, it hasn't really changed that much for me. I've not really noticed a slowdown on any of my hardware and servers that I look after don't have the kind of workloads that are really affected by the spectrum meltdown mitigations. So really, it's been a bit of a storm in a teacup for me. But I know that certain workloads it has really affected and it's driven up the cost of computing for a lot of
0: people. That actually would be really interesting to know. Linuxactionnews.com slash contact. Has this impacted your workload? I mean, we know theoretically if it's a disk network and CPU intensive workload, you're more likely to be impacted by this. But I have to say, um, it seems like the kernel team has done a really, really clever job of striking a balance here. And that's one of the things that has been one of Linus's big focus points, since he's been back, is really making sure that we do this in a smart way. Um, in fact, one of the one of the biggest mitigations that's just been submitted to the kernel is an opt-in where processes can choose to have protection instead of having protection by default with a significant performance penalty. You can say, um, you know, I'm one of those processes that's it's a snowflake. I'm, I'm I'm I am a unicorn. I am very important. I need the meltdown spectre protection. And I I opt for that. And I will eat that performance impact for that. And then the kernel says, all right, okay, very good. I will protect you. But otherwise, your applications are unimpacted by the performance penalties of these different mitigations. And that's a pretty smart way, I think, to handle this. Well,
1: yeah, if you've got a load of machines that are behind firewalls and stuff and are only on your internal network, then you don't really need to bother with these mitigations the the risk isn't really that bad whereas if you've got public facing web servers and stuff then obviously you do need to do that and so it is good i think that we've got this choice now and it was a very sensible approach and a very clever solution to it but we can't talk about the kernel without the code of conduct and linus leaving for a while and coming back there was a lot said about this at the time but nothing's really changed since then, has it?
0: Well, we've gotten a more behaved Linus Torvalds. I actually think this was handled in a masterful way. Let's let's recap, just, just because it's the end of the year and that's what we're doing right now. It starts with a rather aggressive article that was about to be published in The New Yorker. They reached out to contact Linus to get his input on it. And he was then alerted to what was about to be a shitstorm coming his way. He decided to take some time off. They applied a rather rushed code of conduct to the colonel and he took his break. Code of conduct went live. The entire internet freaked out. The New Yorker piece ran. Time went by. They modified that code of conduct to be a little more amicable for people involved. Linus came back and he seems to have toned down his interactions. And I think he very tactfully avoided a huge shitstorm that was coming his way. And business is now continuing on like nothing happened with Linus that swears a bit less. And I think in some ways this was the ideal scenario because now we have the ground rules for participating in the kernel that everybody understands. And we still have the original visionary that started the project involved directing the project. This, to me, seems like the absolute best case scenario that we could have gotten. You look at all of the different political situations that have happened in the same general flavor over 2018, and I think Linus navigated it perhaps the best.
1: Yeah, I agree. I was worried for a while that this was going to make serious changes and maybe even the most serious change that he would go. You wanted to have a bet that he wasn't
0: going to come back.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was seriously worried about that. But it seems to have all blown over and it is just business as usual. Whether or not there are tensions simmering below the surface that will kind of bubble over. That's almost guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll see some more of this next year, but I really hope not. I really hope that they just stick to writing great code and making the kernel be the best that it possibly can be. But I think we're
0: going to have to see on that one. Well, we can't go any farther with an end-of-year review without talking about Chrome OS.
1: Yeah, this was the year that Chrome OS went from being a web browser to being a full-fledged operating system, or at least took some massive steps towards that.
0: Not only did we get a Chrome OS tablet this year, but the bigger deal really was that whole being able to run Linux apps on Chrome. You got the user land, of course, but the GUI apps, like the X11 apps from Linux now on Chrome OS. And on top of those application-level things, they also made improvements like around Chrome OS 70 to bring native file support to Chrome OS so you could browse Samba shares. It's really becoming a full-fledged development environment. Google went from a web browser for your desktop to a development environment to create web applications, and they're empowering that with access to Linux and Linux applications. Well, the big question
1: is, is this going to be enough to sell these machines running Chrome OS to serious professionals, be they developers or something else? And let me ask you a question. You bought a laptop this year, a very nice ThinkPad. Did you consider buying a Chromebook for one second?
0: No, not for the ThinkPad. I have since then. I got the ThinkPad to record podcasts. But I have thought about a Chromebook since then for email and Google Apps and things like that, because now as part of Linux Academy, we're using Google Apps, and Jupiter Broadcasting uses Google Apps, and a lot of places <laughs> use Google Apps. And maybe a Chromebook would be a perfect machine for that. But more than that, I think Chrome OS started the year as a web browser OS, and I think it's ending the year as a workstation OS, and that is no small transition to make in one year. And it, it's not applicable to all of us, but it's pretty remarkable that it's applicable to some of us. That's a massive transition they're going to make and continue to make. And then you look at it with like Samsung DeX and other things in this general area and Microsoft with the Windows subsystem for Linux. Something's happening here.
1: Well, that something is companies waking up to the power of Linux. And by Linux, I mean proper Linux, not Android or Chrome OS as we used to know it. It, be it desktop or server, you know, proper GNU slash Linux. These companies are realizing, hang on, this is actually pretty good and maybe we
0: should do something with it. It's not that hard to actually just ship things people want. Hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what we're seeing. Like Samsung and Google are just now figuring that out. <laughs> Hello. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the reality of what Linux users want. Um, And Chrome OS and Windows and Samsung and others. I recently had an interview with the developer of Ish, I-S-H, which is an entire Linux environment for iOS. All the major platforms right now are offering Linux in some form or another. And it turns out the best Linux experience is when you run Linux.
1: (laughs) Yeah, surprise, surprise. Well, you said it was Canonical's year to lose, but really it's Linux's year to lose. But I do not see that happening.
0: Well, we'll see. I have a few predictions. I think you have a few predictions. Let's just maybe wait and see where things are going to go in 2019. Don't miss a single episode of Linux Action News because we cover it as it unfolds every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com for all the ways to get new episodes, including next week's episode, which is my predictions, and Joe's predictions for 2019.
1: Yeah, and a look back at our previous predictions. Will I be editing out the Bitcoin stuff, or will we have to just face the music on that?
0: <laughs> oh, we'll see. I think that's <laughs> that's that's painful, Joe. We have to wait and see.
1: <laughs> yeah. You can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us.
0: And please do join us at LinuxFest Northwest, April 26th through the 28th, 2019, at the Bellingham Washington Technical College. We'll be doing the first live Linux Action News on location, and we'd love to have you there.
1: Yeah, I'm not at all nervous about doing a live show in front of people during the day, not drinking or anything. No, it'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, of course. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next week.
1: See you later.